You are listening to The High Life Podcast, and I'm your host, Meredith Wadsworth. From understanding your lifestyle choices to your limiting beliefs, living your best life starts with honoring yourself every day. It is my hope to fill each episode with information and inspiration to guide you towards living your own intuitive, intentional, and fulfilling high life. Hi guys, welcome back to the show and welcome to this beautiful rainstorm that is happening right now. Um, Hopefully it's not too loud for you, but I honestly couldn't get around it. I'm currently in Bali and it's the rainy season here and it hasn't been raining too much, but occasionally we get these really, really intense rain showers and the villa that I'm staying in is like half outdoors, so it can be very loud when it it rains, Um, but that's just something I can't control. So it's a nice little natural backdrop for just the introductory part of today's episode which I'm so excited to share with you guys. You may or may not have noticed that the topic of blood sugar is really prevalent in today's dietary health circles, and rightfully so, because it's definitely an important topic, but there's not a whole lot of clarity around how we should be going about managing blood sugar, and particularly when doctors are saying one thing and alternative medicine is saying another and social media is saying another, it can be all really confusing and overwhelming. And we really need to be looking at where we're getting our information from. For a long time, the accepted protocol in the medical field for those with insulin resistance and diabetes was to follow a high fat, low carb type diet and taking high doses of insulin injections for life. But that never really satisfied the guests on today's show who have taken the old methods and outdated science and really turned it on its head. I am so excited to bring this conversation with Robbie Barbaro and Cyrus Cambada. Both are type 1 diabetics and total experts in mastering diabetes. Um, They are such awesome guys and I was so excited to get the opportunity to speak with them because I've been following both of them on social media for quite some time. Um, I think they're pioneers in the field of plant-based living and particularly in um, dealing with diabetes and they've done some incredible work helping thousands of others, um, themselves included, in not only managing their condition but learning to thrive and it's really quite powerful the healing powers of plants and particularly plant-based carbs. And so we dive deep into that today. It's also a really timely episode because their brand new book, Mastering Diabetes, just came out. So definitely, definitely check that out. And this episode today is going to give you sort of a sneak peek into what that book is all about and to how their online programs work. Um, And also just be really informative for those who are trying to understand more about blood sugar regulation and the powers of a plant-based diet. So with that, let's dive right into the show and I'll talk to you guys on the other side. It's such an honor to have you both on the show today. I've been following you guys for a while, and I feel like you're such pioneers in the plant-based wellness space. Um, And 
so I just really appreciate it. Um, I'd love to have you guys sort of explain your personal stories and how you teamed up on your latest coming book, Mastering Diabetes. For sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having us on the podcast. Uh, it's, it's an honor to be able to meet you. You know, we were talking beforehand how when you do a podcast with somebody who's another influencer who's into the same type of lifestyle that you are, then all of a sudden you become best friends with each other. And it's always something. It never gets old. Let's put it that way. Never. Never does. Uh, yeah. Really an honor to be here. Thank you. So so uh, I'll speak on my behalf. I was diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes when I was in uh, my senior year of college, so 2002. I was going to Stanford University and I was just trying to graduate and move on with my life. And then all of a sudden I noticed that uh, I just didn't feel well and I didn't know why. And when I say I didn't feel well, I, I had very low energy. Uh, I was urinating 17, 18, 20, 22 times per day, literally like every 20 minutes, uh, every 20, 30 minutes like clockwork. And uh, I was incredibly thirsty. I mean, I had never had a thirst like that in my life. Uh, and so, you know, every five, 10, 15 minutes, I was like, I would drink a glass of water, put it down. And then I would drink another one and I would get thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. So, uh, I, I knew something was wrong. I just didn't know what it was. Picked up the phone, called my sister. She's a doctor. I said, Hey, Shanaz, here's my symptoms. What is happening? She started crying immediately said, go straight to the health center. You have type one diabetes. Now at this time I didn't, I didn't know anything about diabetes, right? I'm a 22 year old, happy go lucky guy. And I wasn't studying biology or health. And so she said the word diabetes and I, I turned to her and I was like, uh, I thought diabetes had something to do with old people and cake. That's it. <laughs> uh, and so she's like, listen, I don't have time to explain. You trust me. This is type one diabetes. Just go to the health center. So show up at the health center half an hour later. They check my blood glucose. I'm beyond 600. So for context, a normal blood glucose is supposed to be between about 80 and 130 all day long. If we tested your blood glucose right now, you being non-diabetic, uh, almost 100% guarantee you'd be between 80 and 130. You are in the middle of the night, before breakfast, after dinner, you name it. Um, and it's because your liver and pancreas are constantly communicating with each other to make sure that your blood glucose has a very tight window and doesn't really vary very much. In my situation, my pancreas had lost its ability to manufacture insulin. And as a result of that, my glucose started to rise and rise and rise and rise. The, the funny thing is that it was undetectable. So I had no idea that that was happening to me until I got to the point where I was experiencing all these symptoms. And then at that point, I said, oh, wait a minute, let me go to the doctor and see if you know they have any answers for me. So long story short, went to the hospital. They checked me in, gave me an IV of insulin in one arm. They gave me an IV saline in the other arm. And uh, within 24 hours, they diagnosed me with type 1 diabetes and two other autoimmune conditions. The wow. first one was Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, which, which I had previously been diagnosed with in the previous six months. So I was aware that I had that. Um, and the second one was alopecia universalis, which is why I don't have any hair. I have no hair, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, nothing, literally not a single hair on my entire body. And I first got diagnosed with Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. And then within a few months, alopecia universalis set in. And then within six months, I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So the doctors told me, they said, listen, you have three autoimmune conditions and we don't know what that means. We literally have never seen anybody with this combination of three autoimmune conditions. That's There's what you want to hear. Exactly what I wanted to hear. They said, oh, can we talk about you at our next team huddle? And I said, sure, you can do whatever you want. They walked out of the room. I started crying immediately because I, I mean, that's not, that's not a very encouraging message. 
right? So they discharged me from the hospital, got my blood glucose under control. Imagine going from being a normal, you know, non-diabetic individual or non, you know, a, a normal healthy individual with no chronic diseases. 24 hours later, you get discharged from the hospital. You have a blood glucose meter. You have test strips. You have two, you have a prescription for two types of insulin. You have a carbohydrate counting guide, which you have to use every single time you eat in order to decipher how much insulin to give yourself. And you have a bracelet that says, I am a life alert patient. If something happens to me, here's my identity, call 911. Wow. And I, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. So I go back to my normal life. And uh, I didn't know what I, I literally had no idea what I could do. Um, over the first year of living with diabetes, my doctors had, had recommended that I eat a low carbohydrate diet. And that's sort of the general recommendation that they give to all people living with any form of diabetes because it's a way to quote unquote control your blood glucose with precision, right? Or to control your blood glucose well. So I did that and I tried to reduce my intake of potatoes and rice and corn and fruits. And I started to eat more turkey burgers for breakfast and eggs and milk and beef and, you know, small amounts of pasta, small amounts of bread. My blood glucose was a nightmare. It was ridiculous. And it didn't, you know, I grew up with an engineering degree and my whole purpose in undergrad was to try and control complex systems. And this was one system I just absolutely could not control. And it, and it seemed like my, my insulin use was creeping up from 25 units a day to 28 to 36 to 39 to 42 to 45. And I was like, what is happening? Am I going to be injecting 100 units of insulin sometime within the next couple of months? Because it sure feels that way. So I started looking for more information. And uh, a friend of mine living in San Francisco told me, hey, you should talk to this guy named Doug Grant. And I said, who's Doug Grant? And he said, well, he's a guy that teaches people how to eat a you know plant-based diet or a vegan diet and i think you could benefit from him big time so i picked up the phone i called doug i went to a retreat of his within seven days doug taught me how to switch over to a diet where i was a not avoiding carbohydrate rich food in any way shape or form but b lowering my total fat intake and eating as many plants as humanly possible so i started to eat these massive massive plates of figs and bananas and persimmons and peaches mm. and mangoes. And I mean, I've enjoyed eating fruit my whole life, you know, leading up to that, but I did not even know how much I enjoyed fruit until that moment. Mm -hmm. So I started piling on lots of fruits and vegetables, expecting my insulin use would go up to go, go crazy, that it would continue to climb because the conventional wisdom says the more carbohydrate you eat, the more insulin you're going to require. But instead, my insulin use came down. 40% reduction of insulin in one week. Wow. By eating a, a, you know extremely high fruit intake. And so to end this story, because I know this is a little long, I basically continued my lifestyle once I returned back to my normal, uh, once I returned home. And I, think I felt so much better. I had more energy. I could exercise for a longer period of time. I could exercise more frequently. And my blood glucose was more controllable than it had ever been. So I went back to graduate school. I then studied towards a PhD in nutritional biochemistry so I could really understand the, the nitty-gritty science and the molecular level biochemistry. And mm -hmm. in doing so, I was able to uncover a whole bunch of research that has, that has been conducted over the past 100 years 
that for some reason, the general population doesn't really follow. And this research is just mind-blowing because, you know, as early as the 1920s, there were researchers that are doing these experiments on both animals and humans, demonstrating how a more plant-focused diet that's very specifically designed can dramatically reduce insulin use and dramatically improve overall energy levels. And, you know, we've known this for almost 100 years at this point, but yet what the general public is doing is pretty much the exact opposite. Yeah. People are eating low-carbohydrate diets. People are eating a ketogenic diet. People are sort of have been sort of brainwashed to believe that carbohydrates are bad for you and that if you eat carbohydrates, they're going to make you fat, your cholesterol will go up, they're going to make you diabetic, that it's actually the cause of diabetes. And so, you know, having gone through this process, I learned what was happening inside of my body. And then I was able to try and translate this to help other people out. And here we are, you know, in 2020, it's been 17, 18 years at this point. And Robbie and I created Mastering Diabetes to to translate this information and teach people living with all forms of diabetes, how they can adopt a sort of plant strong, plant forward lifestyle to really control their blood glucose with precision and, uh, you know, get rid of this thing called insulin resistance, which we can talk about in more detail later. Yeah. Wow. I I have so many questions from that that we'll get into. Um, <laughs> at first, I would I would love to hear Robbie your story as well. Yeah. So my story starts similar to Cyrus, where for a lot of people who were diagnosed with type one diabetes, I was thirsty all the time, going to the bathroom all the time. And I complained to my mom. I said, hey, mom, I think I have diabetes just like Steve. So my older brother was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes eight years prior to me. So I was very familiar with the condition. I knew what was going on. And my mom's like, no, 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 don't be silly. You don't have diabetes. So another week or so went by. She was out of town. It was just me and my, my middle brother, Steve. He has type 1. My older brother, he was out of the house. So it was just me and Steve at home. And she called to check in. She said, how are you doing? I said, mom, I couldn't sleep last night. I was cramping. She said, okay, go upstairs, test your blood sugar, use your brother's blood glucose meter, and see where you're at. So I tested. I was well over 400. And just like Cyrus said, that is way out of range. You should not be above 130 if you're a healthy individual. So at that point, my brother said, yep, you have type 1 diabetes pack your bags, you're going to be in the hospital for a night or two. And off we went to the regular doctor, got like the official test there, went to the hospital. My parents flew back from Florida that night. And they said, hey, yep, it's okay. I remember the number one thing my dad said is, it's just an inconvenience and you can still do whatever you want in life. So just like Cyrus, like you proceed to learn how to basically follow a low carbohydrate diet. Like that's the main thing. That's what you're taught to do. Try and keep your blood glucose in check. So uh, I was a patient at the Mayo Clinic. I was grew up in Minnesota. So my parents wanted to make sure I had the best medical care that was possible. So we would drive from St. Cloud to Rochester, Minnesota to go visit a whole team of medical professionals at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, they were all great people. I really appreciate them. But looking back, it's, it's very disappointing to see that, you know, there were some pieces of advice that were just sort of missing or options that weren't provided. So I had a, a nutritionist, I had the endocrinologist, there was a therapist, there was this whole team of people to check in with. 
And um, I just was following basically a standard American diet at that point, essentially. Um, but again, being careful about eating too many high carbohydrate foods. But hey, if you want to, just inject insulin, you'll be fine. But there was really no talk of insulin sensitivity, no talk of reducing long-term complications. It just wasn't part of the message. So eventually, I started to take matters into my own hands and started learning. So my dad got into selling supplements. And that was sort of the beginning of me learning, okay, wait a minute. There's more to food than just than just eating whatever I want and that's it. Like there's actually other things you can do. Like, wow, maybe the soil is depleted or something. So maybe we need to like actually think about the nutrients that are in our food. So I started learning more and eventually I I Googled my way to learning about a really a lifestyle where basically standard American lifestyle, but organic or, you know, less processed, but really there's no food groups taken out or anything like that. It's just eat cleaner, you know, just get rid of the, the really the, the obvious garbage like MSG and additives and stuff like that. But that was really the beginning of my journey. And eventually I came across a book called Natural Cures I Don't Want You to Know About. And this is a book we are not recommending. <laughs> This guy, Kevin Trudeau, was selling it on infomercials, ended up going to jail for some, oh some money issues. <laughs> Not recommending now that you it. say that, I think I saw that book in like some penny store once that I walked in. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I remember that book too. <laughs> I yeah. Like purple yeah. stuff on the cover. Big. Yeah. Um, so that book planted a seed in my mind that it would be possible to reverse type 1 diabetes. So basically, in type 1 diabetes, our, our beta cells have been damaged. So the beta cells inside the pancreas, they produce insulin, they keep your blood glucose under control. Meredith, your beta cells are working perfectly, okay? So the goal at the beginning of this process, okay, wait a minute. What do I have to do to allow my body to heal itself and let's just make some new beta cells? Like this seems, seems easy, you know? Let's just go for it. So I had this mentality at this point, uh, I'm in high school, living in Florida, we moved to Florida and I'm like, okay, I will do anything and everything to potentially give my body a better chance of healing itself. So I tried all kinds of things. I tried the Western A. Price Foundation diet. I learned about that. Um, that was like grass fed beef, uh, like raw milk. I remember going to a farmer's market and you would buy milk. That was for cats, raw milk, because they couldn't sell that to humans, but they had to say it was for cats. So uh, I was doing this alternative ways, but I wasn't seeing really any major improvements in my diabetes health. And I also was suffering from chronic allergies. So I took Nasonex and Claritin D year-round and still got sick. I had cystic acne. I did everything, microdermal abrasion treatments, creams, pills, ended up going on Accutane, mm which is basically the most serious drug yeah. you can possibly take for yeah. acne. And your parents have to like sign a waiver because some people have committed suicide wow. from, on that drug. Wow. So acne was a big issue. I had plantar fasciitis as a competitive tennis player. That was frustrating because it's a very painful condition in the arches of your feet. I wore these big blue boots at night to help me do some passive stretching. That was frustrating and uncomfortable. I had warts on my feet. So I had all these standard health issues I think uh, you know many people do come across so um, I started I started to improve my lifestyle and those symptoms were they were kind of still present so eventually after the Western A Price Foundation didn't really work 
I also started to find this this movie. It was called uh, Raw for 30 Days. And it was a movie put out by Gabriel Cousins. And this movie showed how there was actually a person living with type 1 diabetes who had just gotten diagnosed, went and made some lifestyle changes. And then they were actually able to basically halt the, the speed at which they needed insulin. So that was a really interesting story. So I start doing this. At the time, it wasn't called plant-based keto. But in hindsight, it was a plant-based ketogenic diet. So I started eating um, nuts and seeds, lots of olive oil, and lots of greens. So I was getting my calories from high-fat plants and then having lots of vegetables. Unfortunately, we lost connection during this part of Robbie's story. So he gave me permission to fill in for him. And essentially, he goes on to explain that while he was able to lower and halt the amount of insulin that he needed to inject each day, he still wasn't feeling well. He felt exhausted. He had all of these other physical symptoms that, despite having his insulin under control, wasn't allowing him to live a vibrant, healthy, active lifestyle. So he continued to search for answers, and eventually he came across the 80-10-10 diet by Dr. Doug Graham that advocates for a low-fat, high-carb, plant-based lifestyle. And it was in that book that he also came across Cyrus, who was featured as a testimonial. And Cyrus was an example of someone who not only overcame his insulin sensitivity with this diet, but he was also thriving and energetic and athletic. And so with that, Robbie felt like this was the path for him, and he decided to pursue it more strongly. This is inspiring. This guy's fit. Like, this is cool. Like, I want to I continue down this path. So I started a coaching program with Doug Graham. I email him every single day for 90 days straight. He emails me back every single day for 90 days straight. We became pretty good friends. I learned a lot. I learned how to do this. And the magic that happened was the change in insulin sensitivity. So when I was doing the plant-based keto diet, I would eat about 30 grams of carbohydrate per day, inject roughly 10 total units. It's a three to one 24 hour ratio. Now I start eating all the bananas I want melons, papaya, mangoes, berries, like you name it, persimmons. And all of a sudden I'm eating 600, 700, sometimes 800 grams of carbohydrate per day. My insulin use goes to a, a physiological normal amount, somewhere between like maybe 25, 35 units per day, depending on how active I am. And so the insulin sensitivity goes from three to one to an average of 22 to one. It's a 600% change in my body's ability to metabolize carbohydrate energy. So it was a really, really dramatic change. And that led me to go do more research and say, wait, yeah. what's going on here? Yeah. So uh, you start finding out that, wait a minute, this stuff has been published in the literature for a long time. I'm actually not an anomaly. This is very normal. And I got really passionate about it. So I've been doing this now for 13 years. And so I did it all through college and then, first job after college, I worked at Forks Over Knives for six years and sort of helped build that brand up a lot and getting to go deeper into the science and meet a lot of these you know, pioneers in the field was also really helpful for me. And also I did some coaching on the side and then Cyrus and I joined forces, started Mastering Diabetes. And here we are today, really excited to have a book coming out and getting this information of maximizing insulin sensitivity to people living with all forms of diabetes. Again, I know we'll talk about this in more detail, but, but Cyrus and I have experienced our own body. And what we experience every day, every meal, truly is the solution 
for people living with prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. The cause of their disease is insulin resistance. And so we have over 110 million people in the United States alone living with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. And we literally have the solution right here. Just eat, follow the mastering diabetes method, maximize your insulin sensitivity in the same way that Cyrus and I have, and you can absolutely completely put the condition behind you. If you're living with type 1, type 1.5, or insulin-dependent type 2, you could have an amazing life with your lower chronic disease risk, feel amazing, have energy, get to your ideal body weight, and just really have the best life ever. Wow. That is, both of those stories are so powerful and they really just epitomize food as medicine and particularly plant food as medicine. And I think in when this place that we're at right now with, I think diet culture and like eating more plants to like just lose weight or eat clean or whatever, I, I it doesn't encapsulate the, all that power that is there that to, to heal the body, um, at that level, how, how did we get so far astray from these findings that you guys have discovered and that you've applied to your own lives? Like, how did we get to this place where our medical system is advising people to do pretty much the exact opposite? I wish I knew the answer to that. I, I have some, I don't know, some theories about why that's happening. Um, but I can't say that I know the, the, the answer for reals. But um, I think part of the problem is, like, one of the biggest problems that we have right now is that when doctors go to medical school, doctors are some of the most phenomenal human beings on the planet. They literally devote their entire life, their entire academic career to wanting to help other people live healthy lives. From the minute they enroll in medical school to the time they're done with their first four years and then they go to residency and sometimes they complete a fellowship, we're talking upwards of sometimes a decade. They literally don't ever once talk about nutrition. That is a huge, huge problem. So Mm -hmm. most people look to their doctor and they say, Hey doc, uh, you know, I've been diagnosed with heart disease. How should I eat? And doctors, because they haven't been trained in nutrition, um, they don't really know the answer to that question. You might as well ask your car mechanic, no offense to doctors, but you might as well ask your car mechanic because they'll probably know just as much information as your doctor. Right? So, um, doctors are just as susceptible to information on the internet as is your average person. And your doctor is an authority figure on a number of different medical-related topics, but your doctor is not an authority on nutrition unless your doctor has studied for themselves and gone and got some type of licensure or certification outside to really understand nutrition. And so I think that's one huge problem that we are facing in our world today. Uh, Another problem is that the pharmaceutical industry has found a way to – Uh, make sure that people (laughs) become reliant on their medication over the course of their life. So Robbie and I are perfect, perfect examples of lifelong customers. Okay. I am a lifelong customer of Novo Nordisk or a lifelong customer of Eli Lilly. Okay. Whatever company I decide to purchase my insulin from and or my test strips and or my blood glucose meter, these guys are like, all right, I got these type one diabetic guys. Cool. They're going to be customers for the next 15 years or more, right? And we don't have a choice because we have to inject insulin. If we don't inject insulin, then, you know, it's not compatible with life. So um, there are many other types of medications that uh, your average person who's diagnosed with some form of chronic disease also gets prescribed. So their doctor basically doesn't have the training to understand how to use food as medicine. But your doctor has been trained to prescribe medication. So your doctor says, okay, you, Meredith, 
Uh, looks like you have a high cholesterol value. Uh, it's been creeping up over time. I know the solution to your problem. It's called a torvastatin. Okay. And then you're like, oh, what is that? And you're like, well, it comes in a pill and it's, you get it and you're going to refill it at the pharmacy and you're going to have to take 15 milligrams of this every single day. Don't skip any days. Right. And again, doctors are not bad people, but that's the tool set that they've been given. So they give you a statin medication. You go home, you start taking a statin medication before you know it, it's been two months, it's been six months, your, your cholesterol does come down. And all of a sudden you start to think to yourself, okay, great. Now, I'm using this pharmaceutical medication and it's working, right? So without having the nutrition education, we now resort to plan B and plan B happens to be pharmaceutical medication and pharmaceutical companies do a ridiculously good job of making sure that doctors are consistently prescribing their medications. And as a result of that, we've now moved into a completely different philosophy here, which is that disease equals the lack of medication. If you have some type of disease, it means you don't have enough metformin inside of you. It means you don't have a beta blocker inside of you. It means you don't have an acid reflux, uh, you know, what do they call them, a, a PPI. It means that you're not taking enough antibiotics, right? So as a result of that, we've moved far and far away from talking about diet. And then when it comes to actually talking about diet now, as you see, there's like diet wars that are happening on the internet. Yeah. Right. There's guys like Cyrus and Robbie who go around telling people that they can eat more plants and the more plants they eat, the healthier they'll become. And then there's people on the exact opposite side saying, are you kidding me? Who are these two jokers? These guys don't know what they're talking about. They're not. They, they, they're an end of two experiment. And, um, you know, the real way to treat diabetes and to reverse diabetes is to do the exact opposite of them. I want you to eat a ketogenic diet. Carbohydrates are bad for you. Carbohydrates are going to make your blood glucose go up. The only solution is a ketogenic diet. Now, the last thing I'll say here is that we were talking with uh, another on a different podcast about the fact that a lot of the times health influencers and health experts are profoundly impacted by the thing that has happened to them. Yeah. So if you, through your own, uh, you know, uh, through your own life, have found that a plant-based diet has helped transform your life, then chances are you're going to start talking about that. You're going to start looking for research. You're going to start reading books about that, and it's going to probably solidify the things that you've experienced. And before you know it, now all of a sudden you're that person that's talking about plant-based nutrition. It was never your objective, but that just happened because, you know, you felt better, right? So this happens over and over again. And if there's other people who, who have adopted a paleo diet or a ketogenic diet and they feel incredible by doing so, they lose a lot of weight and their, you know, a number of biomarkers uh, normalize, then they're going to go look for research and start reading books about the ketogenic diet. Before you know it, they're going to be like, oh my God, there's so much research. I understand the ketogenic diet is the solution. And so now you have these two sort of like polar opposites that are getting further and further and further and further apart from each other. And before you know it, now they're pointing fingers at each other saying, how dare you say this? You don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to debate you. Your, your, your research is silly. It's epidemiological. It's not causational, blah, 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 blah. And now people are confused. Your average person yeah. who's just looking for information is like, well, I don't know what to do because my doctor told me to take that statin medication. This dude's <laughs> telling me to do a ketogenic diet. That guy's telling me to eat more fruit. I'm going to do nothing. Yeah. That's my favorite. <clears throat> And I think another point worth making here, 
is you ask, like, how do we get to this place, which there's just so much confusion in the world of diabetes health. One aspect is that diabetes is a unique condition in the sense that the patient can monitor their progress essentially on a meal-by-meal basis by using a blood glucose meter. Whereas many other chronic conditions, that's not the case. You can't see, did my cancer get better or worse based on what I just ate? Did my heart disease get better or worse based on that one meal? Whereas now, because you can really monitor your blood glucose levels so easily and so affordably, if you follow a ketogenic diet, you stop eating carbohydrates, and you see your blood glucose numbers are very good. You're like, wait a minute. This works. How can you argue? I, I could show you my meter. I'm taking less medication. I'm losing weight. This is absolutely working. So that's why I think this one particular disease of, of diabetes has just even more of a heated debate. And we see this all the time on our social media. You know, we'll be posting, sharing what's happening for us and for our clients and the science. And they'll be like, you, what are you talking about? I have a flatline blood glucose. Like, I, I don't, my blood glucose, my fast blood glucose is under 100 now. And I eat a ketogenic diet. Like, like, it's working. So that's where a lot of confusion comes in as well. Yeah. I think it's interesting to hear it from the perspective of diabetes in particular too, because I mean, I can speak from someone who's just very integrated into um, nutrition in general. There's that same amount of confusion. And I think also with all these different kinds of diets that are cropping up that are specific for specific health conditions, for example, keto started as a method to help epileptics, if, if I'm not incorrect. And, you know, so people are like, oh, so I should be on keto, right? But it's like, no, like <laughs> there's different kinds of diets for different stages of health. And um, it's it's really about that bio-individuality, but also knowing where you're getting your information from and not just trusting every single influence that you follow. And okay, maybe they're valid, but where are you, where are they getting that information from? What research have they done? Have they applied it to their life, but have, have this been, has this been replicated for other people? And, um, I think it's awesome that we're in this place where people can really do their own research and be self-informed, but it's important to, to really track that along the way. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And you know, there's more, the, the irony of the situation is that there's more research and more information available today than there ever has been in the history of humankind. The number of, of peer-reviewed evidence-based papers that are published per day, per month, per year is is way more than even in a team of scientists is capable of reading and interpreting and understanding. And so despite that, even though there's more information available, there's less there, there's more confusion now than there ever has been yeah and um you're right there's a lot of bioindividuality between people there's no question about that uh there's differences in the way that you digest black beans versus the way that i digest black beans there's certain food intolerances that you may or may not have that are different than the food intolerances that i may or not may not have but despite that i would say if you were to draw a venn diagram you know those two the one of the diagrams of two overlapping circles right you have the circle that represents meredith a circle that represents Cyrus, and you say, where's the commonality between the two of them? The, the commonality is actually going to be a lot larger than you might believe, right? There's going to be a huge overlap right in the middle. And if you put Robbie in that, then he's going to also fall into that overlap. So what I like to do or what we like to do is think about what is that overlap? Let's really focus on the things that we know are associated with or causational in increasing 
quality of life and decreasing your risk for chronic disease. And we do know that, you know, a diet that contains a lot of plants, not necessarily 100% plants, but a plant strong diet with consistent movement, with some intermittent fasting and a low stress level, that's a pretty solid recipe. Yeah. hundred percent. And so what, what exactly, if you're looking at your, your sort of typical day, um, either on a plate or, or like a food pyramid, I guess, how much of that really is all fruit? How much of that is vegetables? How much of it is cooked food at all? Or where do, do grains have a place in that? Can you walk me through? Yeah, this is a great question. So <clears throat> at Master Diabetes, we have created a very easy to follow traffic light system for deciding what foods to eat. So there's a green light foods, yellow light foods, and red light foods. So I'll go through that and then I'll explain to you the proportion, uh, how, to, how to look at that. Cool. So the green light category includes fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, intact whole grains, then leafy greens, non-starchy vegetables, herbs and spices, and mushrooms. So those are all foods in the green light category. And the key distinction of what puts something in the green light category versus the yellow light category is going to be the fact that you can essentially eat as much as you want of them. When you're hungry, tell you're full. That's going to work for the vast majority of people because these foods are so high in fiber and water content, it's very, very difficult to eat too much. They're actually naturally calorie restricting in the beginning when people start. And usually that's fine, especially when people have excess weight. Now, the first four categories here are intentionally listed in that order, okay? Fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, and intact whole grains. <clears throat> those foods are listed first because we are teaching people to emphasize those ingredients in order to make a sustainable plant-based diet for themselves. And so a lot of times people will transition to a, you know, a plant-based diet and they'll start eating a lot of salad, a lot more vegetables, and they will be hungry 30 minutes after, an hour, hour and a half. And they'll be like, this diet's not working for me. I'm always hungry. And then they go and eat something they used to eat, like a cheeseburger, and they feel energy again. They're like, wait a minute, I need cheeseburgers. Like, I, I can't live without them. This type of diet didn't work. It's because oftentimes people simply were not eating enough food. So plant-based diets, usually you have to increase the volume of the food you're eating. And that'll happen naturally. And for a lot of people, it's quite enjoyable, especially if you're learning how to eat delicious, satisfying foods. So any combination of those four food groups are gonna, we're going to be happy with. So if you want to eat tons and tons of fruit, go for it. If you want to eat more starchy vegetables, go for it. If you want to eat, you know, emphasize beans, you want there's certain whole grains you like, like go for it. So any combination, we're, we're happy with. So, and again... It's also going to depend on your level of insulin resistance coming into the program. So in our book, we have two different meal plans. For those who are very insulin resistant and those who are not so insulin resistant, you're going to focus on different foods. And part of the different foods is going to be maybe some more you know, legumes, but also maybe adding more greens and more starchy vegetables, non-starchy vegetables at meals in order to sort of blunt the blood glucose spike that will happen while you're insulin resistant. As you become more insulin sensitive, you don't see such dramatic spikes in blood glucose levels when eating carbohydrate-rich food. It's not the carbohydrates that are the problem, it's the fact that you have eaten your way into insulin resistance with your prior diet. And I'm sure Cyrus can go into a little more detail about 
insulin resistance on like a physiological level, but essentially you have excess fat stored in tissues that are not designed to store fat. That's a simple way to understand it. And when you're in that state, you're eating carbohydrate-rich food, then you can see blood glucose spikes in the beginning. But again, the fruit, the potato, the quinoa, it's just an innocent bystander here. It was not actually the cause of the problem. So that's the green light category. Then the yellow light category, these are foods that are healthy, they're plant-based, but they're either higher in fat or they're a little bit more processed. And what we're telling people is to just be cognizant of how much you're having. Just, you don't just go to town on these foods. So these include nuts and seeds, avocados, coconut meat, soy products, and olives. So all soy products, they're high in fat. So edamame is the most clean, intact, whole form of soy that you could eat. And that's 40% of calories from fat. Next, you would go to something like tempeh or tofu. Because again, good options. They're just higher in fat. And that's going to be problematic for your insulin sensitivity. Same thing with avocados, nuts and seeds, uh, very high in fat. And you're going to easily see it's harder to manage your blood glucose when you eat larger volumes of those foods. Now, brown rice. So brown rice pasta or Ezekiel bread, stuff like that. These are still good foods. They're healthy. They're great. They could be part of your program. But they're just a little bit more processed. So they're in the yellow light category. Whatever the Ezekiel bread was made out of, it's better to have the, the original, or that whole that whole food. Same thing with brown rice pasta. It's a great option, especially because when you cook it, it absorbs the water, which sort of lowers the calorie density. And you could also, but it just still be better to have brown rice. So that's the yellow light category. Then the red light category, these are foods that we suggest people completely avoid or minimize. And this is basically it's all animal products. So that's red meat, that's white meat, that's fish, that's seafood, all that stuff is out. We also have oil in this category. And again, the animal foods are problematic for several reasons, but one simple reason to look at it is that they're also high in fat. So these animal products are going to get you to a total fat consumption or a percent of calories consumption that is outside the range to maximize your insulin sensitivity. So to be clear here, for people who are listening and really want to uh, adopt the method, we've set clear guidelines. No more than 30 grams of total fat per day or a maximum of 15% of total calories coming from fat. It's really easier just to focus on the grams. You can do that, that calculation a lot, a lot easier than you have to put your information into nutrition software to figure out what percent of calories come from fat. Mm -hmm. But any, the, all the foods in the, in the red light category are going to easily get you to be exceeding that fat guideline because when you're eating whole foods, when you're focusing on the green light foods, you're still getting fat with every single bite. It doesn't matter if you're eating lettuce, if you're eating bananas, if you're eating apples, mangoes, potatoes, quinoa, all whole foods contain fat. And when you get enough calories, the combination of green light foods, you're going to get somewhere between, you know, five to seven, eight percent of calories coming from fat just from eating whole foods. And then when you start adding in these higher fat ingredients, such as some of the yellow light foods or the animal products, um, you're going to exceed it very quickly. So oils are also in the red light category. Again, it's just, it's pure fat. And that's not going to help people maximize their sensitivity. It's certainly not going to help with weight loss, which a lot of people are looking for who are living with pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. And a lot of type 1s are also looking to lose weight. So in addition, we have processed foods. So 
these days you have things like soy ice cream or impossible burgers and you know some of these plant-based foods great for the environment great for animal welfare but not so good for maximizing insulin sensitivity they're still highly processed still high fat foods so we put them in the red light category so i mean back to your original question of like maybe i think you might be curious about what we're like personally eating <laughs> uh like very large amounts of food so we actually uh we, we did a, a webinar where we were talking about the principle of calorie density and calorie density is basically how many calories are in a given weight of food so it, it's a constant so no matter how much you eat of so for example the lowest calorie dense food on the planet is watercress it's like 50 calories per pound and the highest calorie dense food on the planet is oil it's 4,000 calories per pound so <clears throat> the difference there's like a it's a well over a 40 or 50x difference it's some dramatic difference so the point is <clears throat> you don't have to eat a pound the point is that every bite of every every consumption of oil is like 50x times more calorie dense than like having some watercress so there's this huge range and you have fruits and vegetables or somewhere around like 300, 400 for fruits. Uh, you get into starchy vegetables like 500, 600. And the point is, <clears throat> we go into this in mad detail in the book, but in short, when you're eating the green light foods, your calorie density per, you know, amount of calories per pound of food is about 700 calories or less. And this is a very healthy range to, uh, to reach your ideal weight and actually maintain it as well. So, Oil, again, 4,000 calories per pound. You have processed foods that are going to be like 2,000, 3,000, so depending on the item. But the point is, you get to eat more food and way less when following the program that we're talking about. So most people on average eat somewhere between three to five pounds of total food per day by weight. And so what happens is you start eating these less calorie-dense foods. You end up eating about the same amount. But because you're getting less calories per bite, you're essentially naturally calorie restricting while, while still feeling full. So that's part of the huge principles, uh, one of the big principles behind what we're talking about. So when we did this calculation, I, on this particular day, I ate 13 pounds of food. And Cyrus was, I think he was at nine pounds of food. And then we had our, at the time, our director of uh, content, uh, she was at like seven pounds of food or something like that. And the point is, <clears throat> it's a lot of water and it's a lot of fiber. So, but mainly water. So people like look at, I have a bunch of fruit behind me. They see my fruit shelf. They're like, man, that's a lot of food. Like, how are you going to eat all that? And I say, no, it's deceptive. It's a lot of water. Yeah. That's what's, the, and it's, again, it's a huge aspect of what we're talking about here. Is this is a very water-rich, fiber-rich, nutrient-rich program that is, maximizing people's insulin sensitivity and improving their overall health. So the short answer, that's a long answer. The short answer is we eat large volumes. And in general, when you pick from the green light category, you can eat as much as you want when you're hungry till you're full, not telling people to stop themselves. If people have sort of challenges around binge eating and emotional eating, that's a separate issue. And that's going to be certainly dealt with uh, separately inside something like our coaching program. But for the vast majority of people, you truly, truly can eat these foods, eat the recipes we provide in the book, the recipes on our website, you eat them when you're hungry, till you're full, and you will lose weight 
while feeling full the entire day. Wow. That very thorough answer. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Cyrus, did you have anything to add? Or are you pretty much on yeah, the same page? What he said. Uh, I mean, I, I'm uh, in a couple of words here. I used to be uh, primarily a fruitarian because that's, again, when I learned from Doug Graham, that's what he taught me how to do. And I enjoyed eating fruit and it was giving me fantastic results. Over the course of time, I've modified my diet because, yes, I enjoy fruit. But I also found that if I incorporated things like beans and lentils and quinoa and some small potatoes and uh, squash and chickpeas that, uh, A, I really enjoy eating those foods. B, they have a slightly different uh, diversity of nutrients. They have different types of fiber. It can help you know improve the function of my microbiome. And they keep my blood glucose nice and stable. So you know, not every plant-based food does keep my blood glucose stable. But um, I've been able to diversify and eat some more cooked foods. And to be perfectly honest, I, I just love it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it sounds delicious to me. And from the meals that I've seen you guys eat, they always like leave me salivating. So um, it sounds pretty awesome. Playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, how, how have you seen eating mostly this way impact certain hormone levels, particularly people who feel like uh, or, or learning that hormone balance comes into play by having a healthy fats in your diet. But it doesn't sound like you guys are saying, you know, don't eat fats. It's just having a, a limited amount of them. But again, have you come across this issue of people battling hormone imbalance issues, but also trying to balance their blood sugar in this way? Yeah. So let me, let me ask for a little bit of clarity because a lot of the times when um, we, we mainly hear this question from women, and mm -hmm. women ask us and they say, oh, well, I, I think my hormones are imbalanced. And I ask them, I say, well, what hormones are imbalanced? Give me some more information. And I, and I usually don't get a, an answer. So in, in this question, um, are you referring to things like estrogen and or testosterone or progesterone? Are we talking about like female reproductive hormones? Yes. Okay. Um, one thing I have noticed that I will be perfectly uh, transparent about is that sometimes when women transition to a plant-based diet, um, they will report that they become amenorrheic, so they lose yep. their period. Uh, have you heard this before yourself? Or I, I I have heard this before myself. Um, I I am amenorrheic, but it's from a history, so it didn't happen just from being plant based. It's kind of happened over time, but it's something I'm learning and working through. But I have I know a number of other people in the wellness space who it happened to them deliberately from starting to eat this way when they were like, oh, I'm I'm you know making all these healthy you know changes. What's going on? Agreed. Agreed. And, and I can't say that I know the answer as to why some women become amenorrheic and some don't. Um, but one, a couple of things that I have noticed is that the women who do become amenorrheic, they're usually not amenorrheic for a very long time. So, you know, it depends on what you consider a very long time. But um, a lot of women sort of they if they lose their period, they will lose their period for something like four to six months and then the period will come back. Um, sometimes I see as um, I've seen as much as about a year with no period, and then their period does come back. And um, there's actually some research that shows that women who go through very intensely stressful situations can yeah. become amenorrhea, right? If there's some kind of like emotional trauma. Yeah. Um, so that could be another confounding factor in the dietary lifestyle change um, in, in as they change their lifestyle. Um, another thing that I have noticed too is that when women lose weight rapidly, which does happen on a plant-based diet, no question. It even happens on a ketogenic diet, um, that the rapid weight loss can also cause some uh, reproductive hormone imbalance causing either infertility or lack of, or, you know, becoming amenorrhea. Um, 
oftentimes the solution for that is to, number one, increase calorie intake such that you're not losing weight um, as rapidly or not losing weight at all, okay? Um, and then another thing that I have um, observed is that sometimes when women become, their body fat percentage falls to a you know, slightly alarmingly low level, then that can affect their production of estrogen, which in turn can affect their ability to reproduce. So the, you know, if a, if a woman goes and gets a body fat percentage test and she's under something on, on the order of 18 to 20%, I'm not an expert in this, but somewhere on that, in that level, then, you know, I always warn them, I say, Hey, listen, you know, if you're trying to become pregnant or if you're trying to have a sort of like normal cycle, then, you know, if you're, if your body fat percentage is in the 14, 16% range or lower, uh, let's fix that first. And sometimes the solution for some of these women is number one, eat more calories or number two, fine, eat a little bit more fat, eat a little bit more protein. And when they do that, sometimes these problems resolve themselves totally naturally. Mm -hmm. So sort of on that general track, whether it's someone who's trying to um, prevent a rapid weight loss, or even if it's someone who's not used to eating as many plants and fruits as you guys are suggesting, um, someone, how do they, how do you recommend they sort of ease into this kind of lifestyle also to fend off any issues of um, digestive distress that may happen from increasing fiber intake and, and things like that is how I'm sure you break it down in your book, um, how to do this over a period of time and, and sort of ease into that. Yeah. Great. It's a great question. Actually, it's, it's one of the most common questions that we get. And, and I think as well, it's, it's worth going into detail about it because, um, the goal is not for you to go from your current eating habits to switching over to a plant-based diet and doing it in 21 days. On the internet, when you go onto Instagram, when you go onto various websites, it'll say, you know, come join our seven-day challenge. Come join our 21-day vegan challenge. And um, I understand the purpose of doing that is to sort of give somebody an experience of what it would be like to become a plant-based eater in a short period of time, and then they can make a decision as to whether they want to stick with it. But I think what we've what is a bigger problem is that in the world of especially weight loss, um, this idea that you can lose lots of weight and do it in a short period of time has become kind of pervasive in our society. And so people have become very like the marketing surrounding diet change is all about you can do this in a short period of time. Yeah. Right. And the answer is sure, you could switch over to a plant-based diet and you can do it in 24 hours. I did it. Robbie did it. It's doable, right? We don't recommend it. We don't recommend it at all because there's a lot of things that are happening and it can become kind of confusing and it's emotionally and psychologically challenging to do. Yeah. So instead of telling people, hey, listen, we want you to change your diet in the course of the next 30 days, we, we don't have a timeline for people. We walk people through a step-by-step -step process where we say, okay, on week one, all we're going to do is change your breakfast. That's it. So here's a bunch of breakfast options. Here's our breakfast formula. And all you got to do is just integrate these foods at breakfast time, which happens, surprise, happens to be mainly fruit. And if you do that, then literally don't change your lunch and don't change your dinner. So people just, you know, they, they get used to having one meal and they try to understand how much do I have to eat in order to remain full for two to three hours afterwards? What mm -hmm. types of foods do I enjoy eating at that meal? How does that make me feel? How are my energy levels? How is my digestion? Is there anything that is that um, I'm incompatible with? Is there any food that I just ate for breakfast earlier today that gives me gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, or any abdominal pain, right? So they go through this process for approximately a week and they get comfortable. 
Then the next week is like, all right, hey, cool. How'd that breakfast go? If you're ready, let's move on to lunch. And then they move on to lunch. They do that for a week. And then they move on to dinner. They do that for a week. And then they can get under more sophisticated things. They can do some desserts. They can do some salad dressings, you know. And, and over the course of time, we teach people that dietary transitions can absolutely be slow. And if they're slow, then one of the benefits when you're living with uh, some form of chronic disease, if you're taking a lot of medication like we talked about earlier, is that uh, it enables you to back off of your medication use or at least work with your doctor to back off on your medication use without um, – you know, it allows you to do it slowly because one of the, the big problems in the world of diabetes is that you know, the, the biggest sort of red flag would be a you know, person uses 100 units of insulin per day switches their diet and then all of a sudden their insulin needs go from 100 units to 35 units in a week, which can absolutely happen. And if you aren't aware of that and you're still injecting 100 units, you can go hypoglycemic and you can go to the ER. And it's very, very serious and very dangerous. So the slow approach helps psychologically, emotionally, as well as physiologically. And in doing so, you're able to sort of move towards a more plant-focused diet and do it literally with no timeline. And that makes your life a thousand times simpler. Yeah. How does, um, how does the idea of meal timing come into play? If anything, do you, do you generally advise people sticking to, you know, three meals a day kind of thing or eating consistently to keep blood sugar levels stable? Like, is there some myth debunking that needs to happen there? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, we find that, um, we're not a fan of snacking all day long. Uh, for, for many reasons. Number one, from a logistical perspective, it is challenging to snack all day long and control your blood glucose with precision. It really is. Mm. Yeah, especially if you're dosing insulin. Uh, man, I can tell you it gets hard because you know you injected insulin an hour ago and it's still active and then you're eating again and then you're going to inject new insulin. And before you know it, you have to understand differential equations in order to figure out how much insulin to give yourself. Right. Um, the second thing that uh, the other reason why um, – Eating a, or sorry, the other reason why we don't um, recommend switching too fast. <laughs> My cat is licking me. He's extremely hungry. <laughs> okay. Um, so so the, uh, the other reason why we, we recommend not eating all of the time um, or like eating consistently is because um, there's, there's ample research to show that uh, the time spent in a fasted state or, or close to fasting state is actually hugely beneficial for your gut microbiome and it's beneficial for many tissues in your body, your brain, your thyroid gland, your liver, your kidneys, you name it. So part of the intermittent fasting strategy is to try and elongate the amount of time in between when you're eating and when you're going to eat again. And so uh, a lot of research has shown that somewhere on the order of about 18 hours of continuous fasting um, is actually hugely beneficial for chronic disease reversal. And um, this time that's spent in the postprandial state, meaning, meaning the couple of hours right after you've eaten a meal, that's sort of like when a lot of nutrients are being transported. They're being absorbed into your blood. They're being transported into tissues. They're being uptaken into tissues, utilized for energy, stored for later, et cetera, et cetera. So that postprandial state is very important, but if you're constantly in a postprandial state where you're forcing your digestive system and the tissues to constantly be active, absorbing, uh, you know, absorbing nutrients, 
getting rid of nutrients, secreting enzymes, hormones, you name it. Um, it can lead to a lot of, uh, it can, it can lead to many problems down the road. So mm-hmm. short story is, you know, elongate the time in between meals, uh, from a metabolic perspective, it's easier and then from a user perspective. It's also easier as well. Mm-hmm. And so do you both typically do 18 hour fast each day? I'm sorry. Let me back up here. I did not mean to insinuate that I do an 18 hour fast. However, um, we do have many clients that do perform 18 hour fasts on a daily basis, either a 16 hour or an 18 hour fast. And it's part of our program. We recommend doing it. Um, it's hugely beneficial for reducing medication requirements and for and losing weight for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. the reason I choose not to intermittent fast is because if I do intermittent fast, I lose weight. Um, and I don't want to lose weight. My calorie requirements are like 32 to 3,400 calories per day. And it's very hard to eat that number of calories within like a six to eight hour window. So, um, you know, if I could intermittent fast, I would, but it's just uh, challenging for me. I just love, I just love eating fruit so much that (laughs) I I can't skip a meal. Yeah. Fair. That's how I feel. Um, it's interesting. This uh, intermittent fasting is another one of these things that I feel like is trendy and there's certainly science behind it. And, um, but I think it's also one of those things people need to, again, assess what works for them and what their body's needs are. And I'm someone I've, I've been doing intermittent fasting, honestly, for as long as I can remember. And I didn't even know I was doing it. It was just a matter of having at least 12 hours between when I was having dinner the night before when I was eating breakfast the next day, my body naturally just needed that kind of 12 hour window. Um, the more that I've been studying integrative medicine, functional medicine, and learning about the body and, um, autophagy and that postprandial period and everything, I'm also learning that to a degree intermittent fasting can actually increase cortisol levels in the body, depending on, um, the kind of state that you're in, especially if someone has sort of a stressful morning and they're not eating for a certain period of time, that increase in cortisol can also lead to increase in blood sugar levels, even if you're not actually consuming any food. So how does that, how does that come into play? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Um, so the increase in cortisol levels can certainly happen, especially as the length of your fasting window increases and increases and increases. So, you know, if you had a cortisol monitor on you and you could basically, you know, take a look at what your cortisol levels were at any given moment in time, you could see them rising and you could say, oh, wait a minute, maybe it's time for me to start eating something, right? But um, I, from what I've experienced and from what I've read and from what I've, you know, um, learned from the people that we've taught, um, it, there's a sort of individual, there's a bio-individuality amongst people that I think is very, very important to pay attention to. So if you're yep. the type of person where you find that, you know, eating for, tw- you know, not eating for 14 hours causes you to get jittery, causes you to get stressed, causes you to get hangry, causes you to get upset. These are all indicators that, you know, maybe the window of your you know fasting window is, is, should be over. Right. And, um, that's okay. Right. If you can't get to a 16 hour fast, and you find that your cortisol levels are increasing, then um, that's okay to end your fast. I, I do know that over the course of time, as somebody, you know, intermittent fasting is, it's like playing soccer. You know, the more you practice, the better you get. It's like playing guitar, right? It is something that you can truly practice and improve. And the physiological response to fasting is going to change over the course of time. Mm-hmm. And so, again, if 12 hours is enough today, fine. Stop it at 12 hours. Maybe you could do 12 and a half hours tomorrow. And then over the course of multiple weeks, you can increase that closer to that 16-hour target. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But again, coming back to your original point that you're not doing that in in place of 
cutting out the amount of calories that you need to have on a daily basis in order to be successful on this kind of lifestyle. Give me that question one more time. That it, 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 in increasing your intermittent fasting window, again, it's not to um, cut down on the amount of, of calories and energy that you need to consume from this dietary you know, lifestyle in order to be successful on it. That in that decreasing that time window, you're not limiting the amount of food. You have to make sure that you're still getting in that amount. So it's not like people should be expanding that time window just to reduce how much they're eating if they're coming at this from a weight loss perspective, right? right. You, you hit it on the head. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Good point. Um, I just want I, to piggyback off this just one more sentence here, a little bit about like yeah. <clears throat> more than a sentence, but you, you, this whole concept of like everybody's unique, everybody's different. And we so believe that. And that's why we became so passionate about creating a coaching program. And we have a section of the book called you know, One Size Fits No One. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true. Like there is so much individualization that um, needs to occur for people to really address where they're coming from and then build a program that's sustainable in the long term for them. So um, just want to reiterate that we're all on the same page for that. And uh, the, the book and the program is designed to work within a broad range of preferences and, you know, prior challenges. It can, it can work for everybody. It just takes tweaks. Yeah. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I'd love if you guys have any, um, tips or tricks or any, any sort of complications that you run into with this lifestyle. Like Robbie, I'm pretty sure I've seen that you travel with like a massive box of fruit. So like, how does that work? And, um, how does it work at restaurants and, and things like that? Yeah. So I'll talk a little bit about traveling and I'll let Cyrus talk about restaurants because he has some fun tips when it comes to that one. Okay. So for traveling, I think the key is, and I think even for when you're at home, the key is planning, just truly thinking through the day, thinking through what's going to happen when you get to your destination and planning ahead of time. And we have so many great tools these days. You can use Google Maps and Google Street View to like figure out exactly what the grocery is going to look like, exactly where it's going to be. Um, so planning, hey, if I'm going to fly to New York and I'm going to arrive at you know noon Pacific time and I have a meeting that starts at four, okay, where am I going to go? to either pick up a healthy meal or what am I going to bring with me? Like if it's one or the other, you have to plan it out because you can't expect this current food system to take care of your health needs. It's really, you got to take matters into your own hands. And so personally, I just travel with a, with a box of fruit and yes, it is a <laughs> banana sized box. Of, it's, it fits in the overhead compartment. So think of, you know, people with one of those roller bags or in the largest roller bags that will fit in the overhead compartment. That's the size of my banana box. And I will have produce in there. And every time, wherever I go, I'm, I'm set up for at least a day or two of having at least my basics met. But I always plan to go to a grocery store. I buy greens. I buy some non-starchy vegetables. I buy some additional fruit to ripen. So I always have uh, a system in play. But yes, you don't have to travel with a banana box, okay? You can travel with a tote bag that has a couple, you know, food containers, Rubbermaid containers, or, you know, Pyrex containers that has a meal or some ingredients for the next meal. But you can actually fit a good amount of food in, and it's just a simple tote bag. So it just really comes down to planning and preparation and also understanding that grocery stores, and again, when people living with IBs are told, hey, you get to eat fruit again, it kind of adds a little bit of convenience in a lot of ways. It's like, 
anywhere that you see pretty much a McDonald's or Burger King or something like that, you're trying to get a quick meal, there's usually a grocery store nearby too. And you yeah. can go to that grocery store, you can get oranges, you can get grapes, you can get berries. These are foods that don't need to ripen. They are ready to go off the shelf. That's true fast food. So I think learning about little tips and tricks like that and just having that mindset, okay, wait a minute, yeah, I can go and get these fast foods and absolutely lower my blood glucose and A1C. And it really opens up people's minds for what's possible. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cyrus, Cyrus how do you get healthy food at a restaurant? Okay, so when it comes to eating a restaurant, that's one of my favorite topics actually because uh, there's a number of different strategies you can use. Uh, number one, I usually find that there's certain types of restaurants that actually have better options than others. So <clears throat> Southeastern Asian restaurants tend to have very good options, whether you go to a Thai restaurant or a Vietnamese restaurant. Sometimes Japanese restaurants can actually have a lot of plant-based options. Uh, things that can get challenging. Um, Mexican food I find to be somewhat challenging because a lot of it tends to be fried, unfortunately. Um, and Italian food tends to be challenging because it, it seems like it's a lot of refined. You got a lot of pizza dough, you got bread, you got olive oil. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's tasty as heck, but it's uh, it's hard to eat an actual whole food meal there. Um, so choose the right restaurant. Number two, uh, definitely look at the menu online before you go. No questions asked. Every restaurant now has their menu online. So if you haven't done your homework, then you're just sort of making your life more challenging. Number three, when you get to the restaurant, first thing I do is I usually, I'll either call ahead and I'll say, hey, I, I eat like a monkey. <laughs> is there a way that you can actually satisfy, you know, give me a meal that's sort of more whole food and plant-based and say, well, what does that mean? And then I say, well, I'm looking at your menu online and I see that you have this, uh, you know, this like squash soup. Uh, is there, is there any oil in that by any chance? You know, oh no, we don't use oil in our soup. And like, okay, great. Let that be awesome. Um, is it possible to get that squash soup without meat? And the answer is, oh yeah, cool. We can take the meat out of there. Right. So you just have a, a conversation with them beforehand just to give yourself the confidence that when you do go, that you're actually going to get fed well. And then if you ha don't have the opportunity to do that or you don't have the time and you just happen to show up at a restaurant, a lot of the times what I'll do is the minute I get there, say, okay, table for four, they start walking to your table. I grab a server or I grab the hostess and I say, hey, listen, uh, I eat like a monkey. Uh, I eat totally differently than a lot of people around here. Um, can you help me? I, it's, an, it's a question. I say, can you please help me to construct a meal that's going to work for me? And when you use those words and you say, can you help me, then 100% of the time, waitstaff are like, of course I can help you. That's my job. I'm here to help. What can I do? And then you can get into more detail and say, well, this is how I eat, and these are the things I would like, and these are the things I wouldn't like. And as soon as you do that, then you, I try and establish a personal relationship with mm -hmm. the, the waiter or the waitress. And by doing that, then they want to go out of their way to help you. You give them a high five at the end of the interaction and say, hey, thank you so much. Like, I really, really appreciate this. And then when they finally do bring your meal out, I, I swear to you, nine times out of 10, the meal is the best meal at the table. And people, yeah. you know, people will get their, their, their surf and turf and people will get their onion soups. And then they look at you and they're like, what is that? I want to eat some of that, right? And then all of a sudden your meal becomes the conversation. Yes, I have personally experienced that myself before, just asking for tweaks and things there and there. Everyone's like, oh, like, I want what she's having now. And um, I, I love that tip. And also it just the 
the simple also additional pro of that is just getting to acknowledge the server as like a person. I think that's something that is so missed in service industry and just people going to restaurants and just being, you know, sometimes not even looking at the server directly. And I I love that tip just um, across the board to help you both eat this lifestyle, but also just to be grateful for the people around you who are helping to serve you on a daily basis. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it goes a long way, right? It's, it's a very simple thing to do. You look at your waiter in the high, you say, thank you so much. Can you help me out? Give them a high five. Now they're like, huh, this is a very nice person. I like nice people. Let me go out of my way to help another nice person. Yeah. 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 I love that. Um, how have other um, modalities, alternative modalities of healing also come into into what you guys have experienced um, either in your own lives or in the lives of clients? Do you recommend pairing this kind of thing with um, such, you know, different stress reducing techniques, um, acupuncture or meditation, things like that. It's a good question. Um, so in, in the master Nebby's book, we actually don't go into detail about specific stress reduction techniques. Um, we had to sort of make a decision as we were writing the book about what are the aspects of the mastering diabetes program that we find to be, uh, extremely, uh, effective and the things that Robbie and I are most familiar with. Mm-hmm. And um, we boiled it down to uh, number one, eating a whole food plant-based diet that's low in fat. Number two, exercising on a frequent basis, you know, preferably about 30 minutes per day. Uh, number three, performing intermittent fasting and determining what's the right schedule and strategy for you. Right? And then number four, doing a lot of documentation of your blood glucose and medication use so that you can become a real good detective about how to keep them at a nice sort of stable blood glucose value. Um, we, again, we did not go into uh, detail about stress reduction techniques, although we do know that adopting a simple meditation regimen or a simple, you know, deep breathing technique on a daily basis can make a huge, tremendous difference in your overall baseline stress values or your stress levels. Um, but one thing I can definitely say is that personally, um, you know, I consider myself to be addicted to exercise and exercise is something... Sorry, exercise is something that um, I've used personally to uh, control my blood glucose with precision, but then also to re- significantly reduce my stress level. Significantly. I, I can feel it. Uh, the mm-hmm. time that I go, you know, as soon as I exercise, that just seems like the world around me doesn't really matter as much anymore. Right? You know, I could be stressed out about something. I could receive an email that I didn't like, and then I can go exercise, and I come back, and I just, it just doesn't seem to matter as much. And so... Mm-hmm. You know, the exercise side of things has both a physiological, uh, sorry, like a, an actual blood glucose advantage plus a stress reduction advantage. And that's what we sort of talk about in the book um, without going into too much detail about, you know, specific techniques. Yeah. Cool. Robbie? Yeah, I'll just add that on a personal level, um, some, like a modality that's had the biggest impact on my quality of life, and I think an extension would also be my health, is this uh this this body of knowledge called nonviolent communication it's have you heard of it meredith it's familiar but explain yeah so basically it's a, a book and sort of a way of looking at communication relationships created by this guy marshall rosenberg and as big of an impact as this diet and lifestyle the whole master that beast method has had on my life there's no question that this this body of knowledge nonviolent communication uh, has had the biggest of anything ever. And it's just really, 
again, I'm not an expert on it. I'm just sharing that it's something that's helped my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and if people get the book, it's called Nonviolent Communication. Uh, I I would be uh, I'd be shocked if they didn't say it. It also impacted their life. But it basically just helps you navigate relationships and understand uh, where other people are coming from, and it just sort of it really reduces conflict. Yeah. And for me, for my personal experience. Like, I don't have any enemies. Like, I don't hate anybody. Like, I, I, just, I just don't have a conflict life because uh, I think part of this this way of looking at relationships and people is just, it's a way to navigate. It really just makes life more peaceful. It's kind of like getting some of the results of meditation without having to do meditation because yeah. your life maybe doesn't become as stressful. But I just thought I would share that for fun. Yeah, I think I think for it sounds like it's basically just approaching life and communicating with others in a way that's not victimhood and not like you're doing this to me like and then attacking them back being like this is your that's fault. That's a beautiful way to say. It. Yes, that's yeah. absolutely true. Yeah. Yes. Totally. I think that's being more cognizant of that and just how you are, the language that you're using on a day-to-day basis, it can be very powerful in that way. So, yeah, I love that. Absolutely. Um, for the sake of not, you know, carrying on too long, I feel like we could talk about this for hours. Is there anything in particular that you guys wanted to share about your book that's coming out, um, the program, anything, anything else? There's all types of stuff we want to share. Rob, is there <laughs> anything in particular that, that you want to share here? Uh, I just want to share that, um, we are incredibly proud of this book and I'm, I'm here to promise you, if you're living with diabetes, if you know anybody who's living with diabetes, uh, grab this book for yourself, grab this book for them. It's, it's really, um, it's new information. So obviously before we wrote this book, we went and looked, okay, what's out there? What already exists? And there's, there's a few good books, but what we've written here, it's, it's really new and it's, it's evidence-based. So there's over 800 citations in here and the recommendations we're making, the program that we've built is based on science and just happens to be that our personal experience is in alignment with the science, which makes sense because we're human. And mm-hmm. so you really have the book broken down into three parts. You have our personal stories. We go into even more detail than we did today. And then you have you know, the science and then you know, the, the, the why and then the how. And so you put it all together and it's, it's really powerful. And I, we know it can really help people transform their health. And again, one thing I want to remind people Maybe you might not be living with diabetes right now, but there's a good chance that you're living with insulin resistance, but you don't know it yet. Okay. And insulin resistance, we didn't go into much detail about that today on this show, but um, insulin resistance, it's at the root of many health challenges that people are likely experiencing, whether that's uh, weight gain, whether that's low energy, whether that's headaches, whether that's some more serious chronic conditions like kidney disease, heart disease, erectile dysfunction, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, this this ability for your body to be struggling to metabolize glucose, to take glucose from your bloodstream into your cells, it's a serious problem. It's something not to be taken lightly, and it happens early. It develops even before you get diagnosed with prediabetes. And then obviously, once you're pre-diabetes, you definitely have insulin resistance. But it's really something to be aware of, and that's what the whole book is about. It's, it's, the subtitle is The Revolutionary Method to Reverse Insulin Resistance Permanently, Type 1, Type 1.5, Type 2, Pre-diabetes, and Gestational Diabetes. That's really what this whole thing we're talking about is addressing 
insulin resistance. And again, I'm sure many of your listeners, PCOS is probably could be top of mind. And that's a huge, huge, hugely impacted by insulin resistance. So, um, yeah, just want to say it's, it's a, it's a special book. Obviously we've been working on it for two years. We're very proud of it. And we are excited that it's, it's new information that a lot of people probably just have not heard. So we really hope people enjoy it. Yeah. Those are all amazing points. Cyrus? Yeah, on that tip, um, one thing that I will say is that, you know, a lot of people turn to us and they're like, oh, you know, that, that looks like a cool book. I don't have diabetes. Thanks, but I'll tell somebody about it that does have diabetes, right? And the truth is just like Robbie was saying, uh, yes, this book is hugely beneficial for you if you've already been previously, previously diagnosed with any form of diabetes. But in reality, the, the statistics are pretty remarkable. There's there's just over 30 million people in the United States that are currently living with some form of diabetes. Okay, so the majority of those people are living with type 2 diabetes. They're, so the number 30, 30 million people diagnosed with diabetes. There are 80 million people in the United States who don't know that they have prediabetes. Let's put it that way. Wow. 80 wow. million people, almost triple the population of those living with diabetes are totally unaware that they have it, that they are, that they are on their way to type two diabetes or that they're living with prediabetes. And so, uh, most people will spend many years in the prediabetic state with a higher A1C value, with worsening cardiovascular health, with vascular inflammation, with a declining kidney, with a declining pancreas and have no idea. And, Adopting this type of lifestyle, whether it's the lifestyle that Mastering Diabetes recommends or the lifestyle that Dr. Greger from How Not to Die and How Not to Diet recommends or the lifestyle that Dr. Ornish recommends, it's all very, very similar. We just happen to take a very diabetes-centric approach to it. And you know, if you're in a position where you suspect you might be living with prediabetes or you might be gaining weight and not understanding why or you're feeling low energy, all of these are indicators that you may actually be living with prediabetes. So pick up this book, get it, read it, adopt the, rec- the, the, the lifestyle changes that we recommend and watch as your life transforms. And again, it's not a race, but it's, it's very powerful. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. Educate yourself. So important. And where can we find this book? Where can we find you guys, learn more about you and follow along? The book is available everywhere. So you can find it on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, local booksellers. If somebody is listening to this and they are not in the United States, they're an international listener, you can order from Book Depository and get free shipping. So you go to masteringdiabetes.org slash book. There'll be a link for the Book Depository. And I don't know how they do it, but they give 10% off the, the list price and free shipping worldwide. So grab a copy if you're an international customer. Um Let's see. The best place to connect with that's our website, masteringdiabetes.org. And really, I think the best place to start will be check out our summit. So we have an online summit where we interview the world's leading experts in diabetes health and beyond. So brain health, Alzheimer's, with great uh, content there, whether you talk about heart health, kidney health, um, weight loss. It's really a bunch of amazing, you know, New York Times, you know, best-selling authors. We have um, people who conducted research themselves in high-quality journals. Gut health was a big focus of this year's summit. So check that out on masteringdiabetes.org. You'll find it on the homepage or you can go to masteringdiabetes.org summit. 
that's the best place to really dig deep and hear a lot more information and even more of the science behind insulin resistance. And we're also, we're on Instagram at Mastering Diabetes, YouTube Mastering Diabetes, Facebook Mastering Diabetes. And then I'm actually personally pretty active on Instagram. My account is Mindful Diabetic Robbie. And there I share a lot of the meals I'm eating. You see pictures of me carrying the produce box on the airplane and Instagram stories of me showing you it certainly does fit in the overhead compartment. No problem. <laughs> so we have a lot of fun on Instagram. But um, I honestly, the best place to go is to go to our website and connect with us. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. This has been so informative. Um, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you guys. And yeah, I, I feel like this is going to be helpful for, for so many people. So really appreciate all that you guys do. And, th- and thanks again for the opportunity to be here and, you know, geek out a little bit about diabetes because it's a, it's a big problem in today's world. And, you know, there's many, there's many ways to skin the cat. Some of them tend to give you short-term benefits but can actually increase your risk for chronic disease. Mm-hmm. And we just want to try and spread the truth about the fact that there's a way to improve your health in the short term and in the long term. And uh, it really is not that complicated. It's very simple. It just yeah, takes yeah. a little bit of like dedication to actually want to execute it. So, you know, thanks to you um, for hosting us on the podcast and actually for, you know, doing a, a remarkable job at just continuing to, you know, educate your audience about simple dietary lifestyle changes um, that they can make to improve their quality of life. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show, guys. I hope that you got a lot out of it. I definitely did. And if you want to hear more from Robbie and Cyrus, definitely check out their brand new book, Mastering Diabetes. It's available on Amazon. They also have an Audible, and it's definitely in hardcover, hard copy in bookstores near you. They are a powerful duo, and I can't wait to see all the future content that's going to be coming from them. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, if you could leave a review, rate, subscribe, send it to a friend, share it on your own social media channels, and just spread the word, it would mean so much to me and today's guests. So with that, take care, and I'll see you guys on the next episode.